0: Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, but to will and to work for his good pleasure. So, we'll just take that short chunk first. So, my beloved here, this this is a nice example, this phrase here, my beloved, is a good example of, how you lose a little bit when you translate from Greek into English. So does that look like singular or plural to you in English? My beloved. I would think
1: plural. Everybody. My.
0: So the context gives us the everyone, but if we're just looking at that phrase by itself, do you usually say that to one person, right? So if you're addressing a letter to like your spouse, you would say my beloved, right? And so in Greek, the the plural form is a clearer. It's a distinct form. Um, we run into this. This is one of the things that's really fascinating with when you have English as your first language. There's not there's not as much distinction between tenses and number in our grammar, right? It's sort of like in German. If you know a little bit of German, they have they have three different definite articles for masculine, feminine, and neuter, right? Ours is the the and the, right? so by the article you can't tell whether the word is a masculine word or a feminine word, right? Um, so that's one of the tricky things when you're translating, um, is the the Greek is often clearer on certain points than the English is. So this is just an example of that where uh, Martha is right that uh, we he's referring clearly to the congregation of the Philippians. Paul's not writing a letter to his personal beloved he's addressing the congregation as beloved there um okay now we get to the part that's kind of tricky which is you are working out your own salvation with fear and trembling uh, mark at two verses 12 and 13 for it is god who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure so this is uh one of the things in the bible that is very difficult for us to understand. What does it mean to fear God or f- have a fear of God?
1: Like have a healthy respect.
0: A healthy respect. Okay, what else? Does that sum it up for you, you think? Having a fear of God is a healthy respect of God. When So when you say respect, are you saying respect... What, what are we respecting?
1: That he's the one that's in charge, and that we're we're beholden to him for.
0: Okay, so like his divine authority,
1: maybe.
0: Yeah. What you're saying there. Yes. Okay, so respect for his divine authority. That is certainly an element of the fear of God, but the word used in here for fear um, is you'll, you'll probably you won't recognize it as I write it, but. Um, It's pronounced phoboo, which sounds like what English word we use to refer to fears. Phoboo, phobia, phobia. If you have a phobia of something, you have a fear of something, right? Um, And you could say that if you have a phobia of snakes, that you have a healthy respect for snakes, But there's some other element of the fear in there as well, which is, get away from me. Right? So, um, or maybe to use a different term, terror. Right? Um, So when I was little, I was afraid of roller coasters. Some of that, if somebody were to ask me to rationally explain my fear of roller coasters, was a healthy respect for what could happen to me if things go wrong. But at, at its base level, it was also, I was afraid, I was terrified, right? Um, and sometimes we we take this to go too much in either direction, that we make the fear of God, well, it's not really fear, because why would I fear God? Um, it's it's a healthy respect or an awe, right? I'm in awe of him. Um, but there are other times where people really emphasize the terror side, uh, and, and I think it's a bit of both, right? So. When um, <clears throat> when it says that the the shepherds were sore afraid, or if you wanted to translate that more woodenly from the Greek, when the, all the angels appear on the Christmas story, it's that they feared a great fear. Okay. Right? It's a it's a it's a doubling of that verb. Um, they were like pee in their pants afraid. That's what that's getting across, right? Or the guards at the tomb, when the angel descends and the stone is rolled away, and it says that they're shaken and become like dead men. Right? They basically were so afraid they passed out, right, is the understanding. So there's always a very kind of real visceral terror aspect to the fear of God. Now, what are we afraid of? How, how, is it, how do we make sense of that I'm terrified of God? Because for us in a post-resurrection world, it's a weird thought to have. right? And, and it, it may seem, as I'm talking about this, that I'm contradicting the sermon I just gave you. Right? <laughs> but it's actually related to something in the, in the kind of move in the sermon. Which is that before Christ, this is the appropriate response to God. And no one will have to tell you to feel it. If God shows up and you don't have Jesus this will be what you feel, right? There will be no doubt in your mind. I remember I was having a discussion with uh, Agnostic, and somebody asked him, like, well, how are you going to know, you know, if the Christians were right or not? And he said, well, I think if they were right, it's going to be pretty obvious, (laughs) right? In other words, like, when Jesus returns, (laughs) you're not going to be able to confuse that with anything else. It's going to be what it's going to be. You're going to know what it is. And if you're not one of the the believers, this will be the result. Right? Um, because, I mean, imagine this for a moment. Close your eyes. So imagine this for a moment. So C.S. Lewis says that he he says, people seem to think that meeting the gaze of pure goodness is going to be a fun experience.
1: Right?
0: And he says, I think they should think again. right? So imagine, knowing what you know about yourself and knowing what you know about the righteousness of God and the justice of God, if he appears to you, what that would feel like. Right? It would be terror. Like, I'm an enemy of that. And not only am I afraid that he's going to destroy me, a part of me, like, agrees that he should. Right? Because I'm acute, I would be acutely aware of the fact that I am not correct and he is correct. Right? Um, now, the difference is that, Jesus has now placed himself between us and that. So that when we see God, what does he see when he looks at us? He only sees the Lord. He only sees the Lord. So he no longer sees the part of us that should feel terror. So as Christians, when we hear fear of God, we shouldn't diminish it to be something that's just an awe, just a respect. But we also shouldn't forget that we have a healthy respect for what God and his authority could have done to us. But instead, in love, has chosen, right? Because the acknowledgment there is, it's totally up to him what he chose to do, right? And so the the Christian conducts their life in the shadow of this idea, because, like, it's it's totally up to him. He chose to use his divine authority for my sake, and he has called me to a new life, a life away from where this was the only reality when I was confronted by God. Mm-hmm. Right? And this is true even all the way back in the Old Testament. Right, The only time that we get a picture of people like face-to-face with God is, is during the Mount Sinai experience and after Moses, what does he do? He throws the blood of the sacrifice on the people. Right? The blood of the sacrifice purifies them, and then they're able, the elders and Moses, go up and have a meal with God. Right? It's kind of a crazy scenario there. Right? Well, the same is now true for you, why seeing God face-to-face will be a joyous experience instead of a terrifying one is because you've been washed clean in the blood of the Lamb. The sacrifice of Christ has purified you. He has called you his own, and now we're not afraid that he's going to smite us. So say that that way if I can. So when, he, when Paul says here in verse the end of verse 12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, is this respect of his authority as we live our life in Christ, right? That God, the, the God of the universe is working in you. When I think about that, <coughs> right? if that doesn't cause you to be, like, I heard a pastor say it in this way. That if you go into the pulpit, if you ever go into the pulpit and you're not afraid or... Um, like vigilant about what you're going to say, Get you out. should quit, right? Because what you're doing is you, God is working in you to exhort the Scriptures to His people, which is a task that should never be taken lightly, right? Um, <clears throat> so that's just as an example, He's He's given each of us vocations in which we are work, we are His hands and feet, right? Um, that's a humbling thought, right? And that's kind of what Paul is expressing in the Philippians here. For, God is, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Right. So I like that distinction as well. It's not just that he's the one doing the thing. He's also the one creating the will in you to want to do it. Right. So this is where we talk about like you can almost, sometimes you hear the, the, the concept of repentance preached almost like it's your own work that you're doing.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? But repentance is not your work. It's something you do in response to the urging of the Holy Spirit. Right? And so it's God's work in you to bring him back to himself. Because otherwise there would be no difference between, well, I have to choose to repent and I have to choose to believe. Right? We believe that the word of God, the movement, of the working of the Holy Spirit is what prompts all that stuff. Okay. Verses 14 here. Someone want to read uh, 14 to 18 for us.
1: I'll read it. <clears throat> I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me.
0: Okay, so do all things without grumbling or questioning. <laughs> How are you doing on that? Not bad. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a question bad. about that, actually. Um, <clears throat> right, so um, what Paul is getting at here is like, For people who, who, uh, and the phrase that kind of holds this section together is uh, the start of verse 16, holding fast to the word of life, right? A community of people who hold fast to the word of life, what do they look like to everybody else? The same or different?
1: They're different. They're different,
0: right? And he expresses that here, that among whom you shine as lights in the world, right? Um, And so he's talking, he's encouraging them to work out their salvation in fear and trembling. God is at work in you. Cling to the word of life in order to be the people to continue to be the people that he has made you to be right um, so notice that Paul's encouragement and exhortation is to action but it's very clear whose action it is it is God's action within you through the word right um, so ironically you know, maybe not so ironically the Holy Spirit has made today all about the Word of God right um, even more so than normal. <coughs> Um, so like practically what does that look like do you think all these words of Paul what is what is he practically exhorting the people to do and to be be
1: God loving be kind
0: Okay. be generous so how, is, so how is it that Paul says <coughs> right that he's not telling them to live a better life
1: it is a better life because you're living in God's God's, You're trying to do what God wants you to do yeah. rather than your own will. What okay. we want to do is, is different than what God wants us to do. Okay. I like the way, so rather
0: than my own will, right? right? Now, how many of you, when you've been confronted with something you know you ought to do, uh, immediately a conversation in your head ensues, mm-hmm. and almost as if, like they show in the movies, you've got a little angel here and a little devil, here, right? <laughs> so... Um, I hate to break it to you, but your will is the little devil. That's right, right. And the little angel is the new will that's being placed in you by the Spirit, and that so. And Paul expresses this very sort of acutely in Romans. This this battle that's going on inside, you. right? Or uh, we don't really like all the heart talk in in Lutheran circles because the heart is deceitful above all else, right? It's part of the flesh. It's part of that old will mm-hmm. that we need to not listen to anymore. So how is it that, that Paul is telling them to, of, like, essentially he's saying, get out of God's way, right? <laughs> Not only in the world, but inside yourself, right? right. right? Um, so the will and the work is coming from God. Let it come from him, right? Uh, and this is part of what we talked um, a few lessons ago about dying to self, right? That's what this is, this is really talking about here is, like, you take your will and you set that aside, right? And the way you set that aside is you by, by letting God's word have its way with you. Right. Um, and it's very difficult to talk about because we always, in our own language, it's, it's sort of insufficient because we always somehow ascribe agency to ourselves. <clears throat> and we, we don't really have agency here. Right? Um, God is working in us and through us. And we talked about, I think uh, maybe it was even last week, we talked about how there's a bunch of people in the Bible who try to thwart God's plans and what ends up happening to what they do. They're unwitting participates in, participants in accomplishing God's will. And in some cases, when they think they've won, they've actually, the opposite has happened, right? Um, because God's goal and God's plan is, I'm going to save you even if you don't want me to. Right? And he's going to use whatever means that he can in order to make that happen. Right? And so... Um, that's one of the freedoms that we have that we talked about in the service today right is that I can I can go forth into the world doing the best I can to be what God wants me to be because I now no longer live under the law but I live under grace. So from the beginning before I even go anywhere, my salvation is secure. That was Luther's big realization right? is it's not that my salvation is secure at the end. It's secured at the beginning, because it rests on the work of Jesus. Right. So when um, when somebody says to you, "Are you good?" a very theologically correct way to respond to them is, "Well, I'm baptized," oh. because in your baptism you were made good, in all the way, all the senses of that word. Right. And so when God looks at you, you are good. Right? Rather than Terrified because of your realization that, like, I'm rightfully standing in judgment. Right?
1: When okay. You, when you let God down, how do you recover?
0: When you let God down, how do you recover? Well, so the uh, Luther came up with this cycle. I use it for my new member class a lot because I think it's a, uh, it's a, it's a nice picture of the Christian life. So. Um, If I'm all about the progress of the Christian life and becoming a better Christian, a better person, I view my Christian life like a stairway, right? And down here is when I was converted, and I'm a new Christian, so I'm still making a bunch of mistakes. But here's year five, and by year five, I better be getting my act together. I should be reading my Bible more in year five than I was in year one. I should be being nicer to people and giving more of my time and my money, Right, um, and we say the Bible doesn't talk that way, <laughs> right? Um, because who is the active factor in all of your progress? Jesus,
1: Jesus. Holy Spirit,
0: Mm-mm. Well, in this, in this.
1: Oh, in that. Uh, in that's us. you.
0: Yeah, it's me, right? Oh, and yeah. so what ends up yeah. happening is is <coughs> Jesus came. This is this is sort of the funny image that I use to remind myself of this is Jesus comes along and says. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he sees you, and you've got this crushing weight on you, and he picks it up, and he places it on himself, no sweat. And, and you're just like, oh. And then in this in this world, you then say, well, Jesus, I really appreciate that, but I'm going to take some of that back. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then you put it back mm-hmm. on yourself, and you immediately get squashed. Mm-hmm. right? Um, and Jesus is looking at you, smiling wow. and weeping, and just being like, oh, foolish child. Wow. Right? <laughs> yeah. um, because... That's why he came, to take those things away. Not so that you can have them back, so that when he took them away, they're gone, right? As far as the east is from the west is an expression that says, no more, more. right? So, you no longer have, like God has, really doesn't, like on a a base salvation level, we can say it this way, God has zero expectations of your new life (laughs) that are tied to whether or not you're his. Just in the same way that if you have children, you don't say to your kids, okay, You have to live this way, otherwise you're not my child, right? Your identity as the child is yours from the time you were born, right? Which for Christians is when you are baptized. When you are baptized, you are now a saved child of God, period, end of story. Now, the trick is being kept in the secure ark of the church while Christ has not yet returned, Right? Most people interpret that as, like, well, you've got to grow in faith, otherwise you're going to fall away. No, right. So this expression here gives a better, I think, picture of what the scriptures say. So at the top of our circle, we have our cross. I came to faith in Jesus. I died to my sins. I was baptized. Praise the Lord. Can I get an Amen. Amen, hey, amen. there we go. Okay. That may be one of the few times I ever do that. So. <laughs> okay, so, but then what happens? You're, you're, you're just on a spiritual high. You come home from church, and your wife didn't do the laundry, or your husband didn't take out the trash. And then all of a sudden, what happens?
1: You're grumbling. Man.
0: Yeah. Sin has been crouching at the door, and it wants to devour you, right? And it does. And sometimes it doesn't even wait until you get home you took three steps outside of the church or maybe it isn't even outside of the church maybe you right <laughs> after the service somebody says something and then all of a sudden we're now we're here right? right how is it that that doesn't create a crisis of faith for me
1: cuz i know i'm forgiven and i can ask for forgiveness
0: okay who told you that
1: the bible gives ah. you <laughs>
0: So I'm I'm (laughs) forgiven in Jesus I'm saved in Jesus I sin And then Luther says That Satan is God's fool For the believer And it's because he thinks When he makes you sin That you're losing Right Going back to the The unwitting participant In God's will But instead for now The believer Your sin drives you Where? Back to Jesus Back to the Bible Bible Uh, Right, Because all the stuff you said, well, "Well, yeah, I sinned, Pastor, but I'm forgiven of my sin. And then I say, well, how the heck do you know that? God told you. Tell me so. Right? So, cross, sin, drives you back to the Bible. You confess, and you go, um, so it's, uh, let's see. Oh, I, I, sorry. I was like, where's the third one? I wrote the second one in the wrong spot. There we go. Right? So, sin uh, sin drives you to the Bible, and then where does the Bible drive you? Back to the cross. Ah, back to Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And after my conference, I guess I should put the uh, the empty tomb here. <laughs> uh, not just the cross. We had a guy come in and speak, and he said he's observed an imbalance in our preaching and teaching that we are so singularly focused on the cross in the work of salvation and God that um, we forget about... The joy of Easter and he said good Friday is not good unless Easter happens if Easter doesn't happen good Friday is the worst (laughs) it's it's terrible 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 bad Friday so um, and like if you were hoping for some progress like over here I hate to break it to you this will be your lot until Christ returns Mm -hmm. it's going to be this over and over and over and over again now the comfort of that is where does your journey begin and end at the cross, at the cross, and the empty tomb with Jesus, right? And so you can almost think of it as in these last days, creation is on pause at this event until Christ returns. And so the goal of the Christian is not to move beyond the cross to some bigger and better life of a Christian. It's to remain. And this is often the way the New Testament talks: remain, endure, hold fast, stand firm, all those sorts of phrases. It doesn't say go out and and fight the, the battles of the enemies because who does that for us? Jesus, right? So we're, we are called to use the things he's given us to stand firm and endure.
1: But there will be an increase, hopefully, in sanctification, right? I mean, as, and it's nothing to do with <clears> us, <throat> but just as we keep going in that circle, um, I mean, it, doesn't Unless it talk about need. that increase in mm-hmm. righteousness?
0: Well, what's okay. happening as you're going through the circle over and over and over again? Who's dying? Self. Self, Self. self, right? (laughs) So your progress as a Christian, and we talked about this, I think, two two lessons ago maybe, um, is actually not a progress of your spiritual growth, but it's the more and more dying to the old self. Okay. Or you could think of it in the way that, like, well, three years ago I was getting in God's way all the time, and now (laughs) I'm getting in his way a little bit less. Less. Um, In that sense, if you want to think of it, progress in that way. And all that, of course, is driven by the word. Right,
1: and, and and is that
0: how we are? We become and can become the light of the world as Philippians. Yeah. I mean, this is happening. Um, around and around we go. Yeah. Oh, what is observed and yeah. Makes us So one. that's a great question. So if you live this way and you really carry it out, this is this is like the radically transformative thing that God is saying to us in the gospel. That you find nowhere else. It isn't that people are all striving to be better persons. You can find that all over the place for people who aren't Christians. right? So what is it that set Christians apart? And, and if you want to say we're the best people, you missed the, you missed the boat. Yeah. right? I mean, if you just type in youth pastor online, the first like 100 things you're going to see are, are pastors who abused their office or got uh, arrested for various offenses. And the same is true within the pews. right? Mm-hmm, yes. So that's not what sets us apart. So what sets us apart is Christ crucified and risen for sinners, right? So if this is carried out the way Paul is describing to them, among whom you shine as lights in the world, well, we can think in order to shine as a light, it isn't that I'm going to go and build houses for poor people, although that's a good thing to do. It's that (coughs) where you live and where your community gathers, sinners are forgiven and loved. There's nowhere else that that happens, right, except with the church. And that's, that's the way that we shine our light in the world. Um, it's not by uh, kindnesses, in, in, the, in the colloquial sense of that term, but by being Christ to the best of our ability, which is Christ loves sinners, he reveals himself to them, and he dies for them. Right? And that's what we're called to do now as, as his people in the world. Now, that's carried out in different ways through different vocations, but we don't have time to get into that. But that's kind of the sense there. So, um, so I, would, I would encourage you, one of the things that came out of this um, conference for me that I went to this past week is there was a lot of talk about the intermediate state between the first resurrection from the dead, which is Christ, and in him all of creation is redeemed, but God is doing this in stages, and the next stage doesn't happen until he returns. So what happens to people who die in the meantime? Right? And, and he was sort of pushing back against the idea that it has become the great goal for Christians to die and go to heaven. He says that's not the great goal in the Bible. The great goal in the Bible is the return of Christ and the making new of all things, mm-hmm. including you. Right? So what happens in the meantime until that occurs? Um, and his point was the Scriptures just don't tell us a whole lot. They say that you will depart and be with Christ, right? So we understand that, like, today you'll be with me in paradise is the, the soul of that thief was with Christ. But death is still a bad thing. Death is still the enemy. Death still breaks people, right? And it breaks people into body and soul, right? And so the soul goes to be with Christ. And so his advice was just speak about it the way the scriptures speak about it. And it's difficult for us to do that, particularly when we would like the Scriptures to say more about something than it does. Right? <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: And so that's that's always good advice, especially when you're talking about something that's difficult like the issue of, of works and progress in faith. Just talk the way the Scriptures talk. Right? The Scriptures don't say you're going to become a better Christian. So don't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. It does say um, to bear fruit. So you can say bear fruit in keeping with righteousness. And we understand that righteousness is Christ's righteousness. right? So All those sorts of things. Okay, let's move on. Uh, 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus. So what he's lamenting there is the fact that in prison he does not have the community of who?
1: Believers. Believers, right?
0: he He doesn't have people who are genuinely caring for his well-being or the well-being of others, but everybody's seeking their own interest. Um, and in particular, they're not interested in what Jesus wants, which is, should always be the primary goal of his people. But you know <clears throat> Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that I shortly, that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So there we get the picture of, we talked about before, that the congregation of Philippi has sent Epaphroditus to Paul in prison because they had heard that he was in prison, they were concerned for him, and now it's kind of going back in the other direction, right? is now the Epaphroditus longs to go back and, and give news of himself to the congregation because they've, they've heard that he's ill and that's it. So it's kind of hard for us to imagine that scenario in our day and age because I can just pick up my phone and say, oh, I'm, I'm okay, send, right? But in this day and age, they had to send somebody with a letter and paper was very valuable and all that kind of stuff. And so those, those are uncommon um, special things. And you can see that obviously he stayed with Paul for a little while because... You make that journey, you don't just turn around and go back because it takes a long time. He probably just walked the whole way. right? Um, so, um, and he mentions here that he was sent as your messenger and minister to my need at the end of verse 25 there. So they sent him to uh, minister to his needs. So uh, uh, think of it this way, that he's, he's a, a, like a thirsty man and he has been given a drink of water, right? The community of believers has reached out to him um, in love, right? <clears throat> uh, any questions about that section before I move on? There's not a whole lot to really dig into there. It's pretty straightforward. All right. Yeah. I, I just think it's so important, thank God, that he had Timothy. And we have to be reminded that we have to have close friends to reach out, even though we may be in prison. There's somebody there for us. Yeah, and I think, um, I think even more specifically, you need to have close Christian friends. Mm-hmm. right? Um, now, Often, when when people say that, I think because of the time in history we have and some of the historical baggage, people take that to mean that you shouldn't have non-Christian friends. That's not what I'm saying at all. But um, I think we have downplayed the the distinctness of our Christian relationships to such a degree that we almost see those as less important than our others. Yes. Um, I see this. I saw this a lot with like the kids that I worked with in junior high and high, and high school. Right there, if you were to say, "Who are your friends?" their almost natural reaction is going to be their friends at school who, like, apart from going to school together and being the same age, they may have very little in common with them when it comes to values, right? Because when you're in high school, values conversations, they just don't come up very much,
1: no. right?
0: um, Like, and the person who usually brings them up is pretty universally, like, like come on, man, why'd you kill the mood? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, the nerd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Although the nerds are now, like, the popular people. You know, yeah. you know, it always goes around. but um, So there is a, sp- a special relationship that you have with other believers and deep connections there that I think often are not taken advantage of in our current culture. Uh, and they're undervalued in the way that we talk to other people about them, particularly our children. right? Um, and like you should, like we just had some family pictures taken on Friday, and the, the girl who did our pictures, um, she was she was very nice um, and she was wondering if you know basically like can we be friends it's hard to find friends and she made she said the phrase that we're always looking for believing friends Mm. right Um, which struck me because I don't hear that phrase said very often but it was a sincere desire to be with people who um, have their your values and parents think this way a lot with their kids out of concern they don't want their kids to be uh, I know that there were, like, I had some friends in school that my parents would not let me go stay at their house because their family had very different values, right? Um, and they didn't want me to pick up on some of those things when I was at an age where I didn't really know anything. I thought I knew everything, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so, yeah, that is a key emphasis here. Uh, is everybody okay with going just a, a smidge longer, mm-hmm. or do you want to stop? Yeah. No, okay. Okay. Well, if you do need to go, this is the this is the time set, so um, you're free to go, Um but we'll just go maybe five minutes longer. Um, okay. Finally, my brothers, so we're here with chapter 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the, circ- we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh becoming like him in his death that by any means possible i may attain the resurrection from the dead okay so a couple of things there um where he's talking at the beginning he's saying look out for the dogs look out for the evildoers look out for those who mutilate the flesh for we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of god well that's one question you always remember the first person who asks that when you're growing up pastor what's circumcision um, I remember a girl asked that in sixth six grade confirmation class, and she was very embarrassed that she did. It was my dad, and he told <laughs> the answer. Um, but uh, so there was a group of of Jewish Christians going around to many of the places where Paul would plant churches, and they were telling them that in order to be saved, they needed to be circumcised, which is the Old Testament sign of the covenant with God and His people, right? And the contention in the New Testament is that's no longer necessary because now there's a a new covenant sign which is baptism, right? Um, and so, so he's saying to be on guard specifically for this group of people because they're going to come and try and tell you that you need to do these things, right? Um, and his basis for that, right, is for um, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, right? Um, so, what he's essentially saying is. Here's what God promised in the Old Testament. What has come in Jesus is greater and overtakes all of that. So this is no longer needed, for now the mark of the covenant is a new thing in Christ. And then he said, if anyone is going to tell you on any basis, based on Old Testament law, I have more credibility than they do. right?" He's saying, I did all that stuff. right? Circumcised on the eighth day. Born a, a Hebrew of the tribe of Benjamin, like, I was more righteous, more zealous, and I mean, you have to be righteous and zealous to go around and kill, kill people who, who disagree with you about the way of God, which is what he was doing with the early church, right? Um, and so, like, I just thought of another really interesting, like, the unwitting participant in God's plan is Paul is a large part of the reason that the church scatters out of Jerusalem and goes to other places, which was God's plan all along. And then who does he call to be his apostles to the Gentiles? The same guy who kicked everybody out of Jerusalem. Um, but so he says, all of these things, and they were good in their time, but whatever gain I had from those I count as loss for the surpassing worth of Christ. In other words, don't exchange like a lump of coal for the great treasure. Right? You, have a, you have a treasure that's of far more worth, right? Um, <clears throat> and then he makes clear again here another example of, of a nice like Reformation verse section that the righteousness of God comes from faith. right? So he says that, that I may gain Christ me be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. It's, it's often like I read some of these and I'm just like, how did they ever miss that for so long? Because it's not like it's just in like two places. It's all over the place, mm-hmm. especially in Paul. I mean, and he says it so explicitly, like Jesus says it explicitly, he says, I didn't choose you, or you didn't choose me, I chose you, right, and Paul here and other places is just like, you can't boast, sorry, you got nothing to do with it, it's all him, right. Okay, Uh, we'll pick up next time, starting at verse 12 there, Um, we'll close with a prayer, if you have any questions, I'm sorry we have to go through this so quickly, I'd like to dive deeper but we've only got one more lesson after this week so I want to make sure to get through the whole book um, but if, if you do have any questions that come up or, or, or thoughts you have while you're reading and we don't get to it in class you can always email me um, or you can just talk to me afterwards for a bit and, and we can do our best to figure that out alright well let's close with the Lord's Prayer <clears throat> Our Father right, who, who art, art in heaven, heaven hallowed be thy name thy, thy kingdom, kingdom come thy, kingdom come, thy will, will, be come, will be done on earth as it is in heaven, heaven.